0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Life After Cardiac Arrest Podcast with me, your host Paul Swindell, and today I'm joined by Charlie Dickens. Hello Charlie. Hello, Paul. Charlie's a cardiac arrest survivor from Great Wakering in South End. Um, do you think you could tell me a little bit about your life before your cardiac arrest?
1: Um, I think my life before my cardiac arrest was very much taken up with work. Um, I was very driven, career-minded and, um, probably led quite a stressful life in terms of what I did. Um, my work was, uh, with charities and working in the community, um, managing, uh, a large amount of services, um, via different organisations, um, And I loved it. I was very happy, I was healthy. Um, My other main thing in my life was my family, my young grandson at the time, Oscar, who was two. um, Loved traveling, reading. And yes, I think I had a very full life, very happy life. And one of the things that I definitely wasn't concerned about was my health.
0: I must say, you you look uh, too young to be a grandmother.
1: (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> can I ask how old you are, just for the, everyone else?
1: I'm 49 now, uh, nearly 50, and I was 46 at the time of my cardiac arrest.
0: Okay, no obvious health problems at the time. No
1: health problems, not that uh, I was aware of.
0: <laughs> well, I think that goes for a lot of us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> can you tell me about the actual day? Um...
1: I can. Um, the day itself was pretty normal. I'd had the grandson over, which Cooked lunch and, um, you know, everything was fine. It was a lovely September day. We'd been out in the garden. We'd taken him over the park. Took him home. And me and my partner were just at home in the evening. Um, And all of a sudden I just got what I can only describe as a weird feeling in my chest. It wasn't painful. Um, Maybe like indigestion, but not quite. But just didn't feel quite right. Um, I had a very heavy day at work the next day, starting quite early with a a meeting with a number of domestic violence survivors. So at that point I was thinking, don't worry about it, get to work, do your meeting, um, and then if it's still a problem, see a GP later in the day. So all fine, went to bed, fell asleep, woke up at about half past twelve, one o'clock in the morning I think. And it still the, the pain was still there. The feeling was still there. It had just moved slightly, and it still just didn't feel right. I didn't feel right. And for some reason, heart attack kept going through my head, even though I had none of the classic symptoms at all. Um, I. What, what,
0: what did you think a heart attack would be like?
1: I had the the sort of classic older man image, <laughs> overweight. Um, I suspected there would be pains real pain in my chest, around my arms, jaw, all the things that I've read about. Um and I didn't have any of that. I just had this weird feeling and a kind of sense of foreboding, sense of doom, and that something just wasn't right. So I got up and still arguing with myself that I had a really bad day the next day and had to had to get to work, um, somehow made my way downstairs. In the meantime, I'd woken my partner. And I don't think he really took me very seriously because I wasn't saying there was anything particularly wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, yeah, so I got up and I actually rang 111 just for advice. Um, I think I wanted somebody to say, don't be silly, you'll be fine, see a GP in the morning. They immediately said to me that they'd send a, a paramedic um, because it was chest-related. Told me to open the door, open the, you know, turn the lights on, open the curtains, make sure that um, a paramedic could get in, which I did. So I went back upstairs, got dressed, said to my partner, you better get up because the paramedic's coming, they're, they're sending one. He came down, he said, look, you've got work in the morning. Um, and I sat there, the paramedic turned up. Um, he did an ECG, he checked my blood pressure. We were kind of joking around and I was feeling really silly for having wasted his time. The ECG didn't say show anything, uh, blood pressure was fine, And he said to me, it doesn't look like it's your heart, but I'll call Basildon Hospital Cardiac Unit. We'll get you over there just to be sure. Literally, as he was saying that, I felt what I can only describe as just the most massive bear hug. It was like my chest was just being crushed. And I remember saying, it's hurting now. That was the last thing I remember saying. Um... Obviously, I now know that I went into cardiac arrest for the first time at that point. The next thing I remember was coming to on my floor, staring up at the beams on the ceiling, um, surrounded by this sea of faces, green uniforms, and actually feeling OK, which was quite strange. Um, also looking over me was my neighbour from a couple of doors down. It appears that in the the interim, while I'd been down, uh, my partner had run for my neighbour, who's an anaesthetist. Paramedic had got to work on me. He'd got me back once through shocking me. I'd then gone again. My neighbour had come in. She'd got lines in between them. They'd got me back the second time. Um, When I came to, that was after the second time. I remember being put into the ambulance and... You know, the the reassuring lady telling me that everything was going to be okay. Did I understand what had happened? Um,
0: the reassuring lady? Who's that?
1: She's a paramedic called Teresa. I don't know her second name and unfortunately I haven't met her. Um, but I remember her, sort of remember her face. Um, but And then I remember we sort of moved off from the house and... Do you know how long you were down for? I'm, to be honest, I'm not sure. I understand that throughout the night it was over, sort of over half an hour between five arrests. Um, I think it was sort of five minutes for the first one, five, six minutes for the first one. second one probably a lot quicker. Um, and then later on, I'm really not that sure. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I remember being in the ambulance and having the third one and, again, feeling that feeling, the crushing feeling, and saying it's happening again. Um, I don't remember anymore until I came to on the, uh, table in the lab, looking at my heart on a screen next to me while they were putting in a first stent, um, and having a conversation, they were trying to get my nail varnish off so that they could do the oxygen levels and having a conversation to say that it was shellac so they wouldn't be able to get it off with an ordinary nail varnish remover. Strange, the things that you think about when you're in that situation, um, I understand after that, I was obviously in out-consciousness at that point. I understand I was then taken back to the, the ward, having had a first stent fitted, went into the fifth cardiac arrest at that point, and they had to take me back down and, and reopen the stent that they'd just, just inserted. So that was that night. Um, yeah, an interesting... <laughs>
0: Yeah, so went from having feeling a little bit not too little well bit. to <laughs> a, a couple of hours later in the hospital having had five cardiac arrests yeah. um, and been fitted with one stent. Did you feel anything the, the day before or anything? Did you, were you a little odd? or
1: No, no, absolutely nothing. I'd felt totally fine up until the point where I felt this weird feeling at about 8 o'clock in the evening. It turns out that I was actually having a heart attack. Um, which caused the the cardiac arrests. So obviously between eight o'clock and one o'clock in the morning, that heart attack had been happening. Um, and just luckily, I'd made that phone call. And I still, to this day, don't know why I made that phone call and didn't wait until the next day. Um, if I hadn't, I don't think I'd be sitting here talking to you now. Oh,
0: absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Um, so you're saying you you are uh, you've had your uh, Oper- well, not yeah. operation, procedure, yes. where they inserted the stent and then... And back then again another, and yep. <laughs> they put another one in. <laughs> they put another
1: was- one in um, after the first one. Um, I've now got a third. I had another one fitted two months later as well, so I've got a good collection going on there. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, then I just remember coming round in the hospital. Not really. I think I was almost oblivious to what had happened. Um... I sort of knew the things that I knew, was aware of the things that I still remember. Came to to see my partner and my daughter sitting next to the bed, looking horribly worried and not really quite sure why or what was happening. Um, I think I must have felt that I was absolutely fine because I apparently the first things I said was they had to let work know that I was going to be late, at which point I was told quite categorically (laughs) where I could shove my work (laughs) Um, and yeah, I suppose those first few days in the hospital is very blurred in and out. I have certain memories of it and yeah. Did
0: they they put you in induced coma?
1: Um, I understand they did. I think it was only for a case of a few hours. Um, because I thought I'd literally woken up the next morning and even to this day, that's how it feels to me that I had apparently not. It was sort of the next day. But even so, I was very lucky because I was, you know, sort of fully, fully conscious um, within twenty four hours. Well, yeah, which is a very good state to be yes. considering what you've been through. <laughs> yeah, very, and very it, lucky.
0: And I think you're quite unusual in that you're able to recollect some of the time between those arrests, because most people are just completely blank. Can you?
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I understand having sort of spoken to others since and and read other people's stories. Um, it obviously is very strange to actually be able to remember bits, specifically the bits, I think, in between arrests, what with all the various drugs that they've pumped you full of and, and everything else. Um, I'm not sure if it's a good thing or a bad. I think there's a bit of me that likes to be in control, so it's good to know what happened. There's another bit of me now that would much rather it was a complete blank because it can hit me in the face at any any given time. <laughs> And those pictures are are sort of deeply buried, I think, now.
0: Yeah, you bring up a good point there, because for me, I've got no recollection of that period, and I I yearn to know what happened, basically, yeah. and I've pestered my wife and various other people mm-hmm. about it, but maybe it's better left unknown.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's, it is a strange one, because, I, as you say, the bits that I don't remember, I still want answers to, I suppose, and... Yeah, I've been try, tried to piece it together over the last, you know, coming up three years.
0: So how long were you in hospital for and what did um, they do while you were there?
1: I was in hospital for just over two weeks. Um, I think it was about the first five days I was in sort of intensive care and critical care. Um, then I was in a room on my own opposite the nurses station. Uh, before I was put on a ward for the last last two days. I think in hospital I was, again, totally in denial. I just wanted to get home. I thought everything was all, was going to be OK. Just wanted to get back to, to normal. Um, I think I realised when I tried to get out of bed and my legs gave way that obviously I wasn't quite up to that at that point. Um, but it didn't take long. I mean, the, the nursing staff at Basildon were absolutely... You know, you, you, I couldn't fault them in any way whatsoever. They were amazing. Um... They answered all the questions that I had at that point um, and were very persistent in sort of getting me back on my feet and helping. My family were there, you know, a lot. I refused to see a lot of people. Um, I didn't want people to see me in, in hospital in that sort of vulnerable state. Um, yeah, I mean, it was it, it's quite a bizarre experience looking back on it now. It's almost quite surreal as though it didn't really, really happen. It is a period where I didn't really understand what had happened or the implications of what had happened. Um, and it was fine laying in bed trying to concentrate on the TV or trying to read a book. Um, but I don't think at that point you realise quite how lucky you are to, to even be there.
0: <laughs> did, it, did, did you feel... How did you feel compared to before your arrest? I guess probably not a lot different.
1: Not at that point, no. No, I probably still felt the same. I still thought I was going to get up a, out of there, walk out, go back to work the next week, be back behind the steering wheel within, you know, within days, babysitting and everything else. I didn't realise at that point how much life was going to change, I don't think.
0: And, and the stents didn't really make much difference because I've heard of other yeah. <laughs> patients who say, you know, I had stents in and obviously they've had a problem that's been ongoing. And to get the full blood flow or much better blood throw yeah. through... They felt instantly better. On. Yes,
1: I hadn't felt bad in the first place. So, no, the stents didn't really, it didn't, I felt worse than I had before. I mean, obviously having CPR, I had fractured ribs. Um, so you get the chest pain that goes with that. Um, you know, yes, didn't, didn't feel great at all physically. And a lot worse than I had during the day <laughs> it actually happened. Um, and as I say, I think I felt very, felt vulnerable. But didn't really know why at that point, point. Um, and, and as I say, thought it, things would just sort of go back to normal and, and was desperate to get out of hospital. I think one of the things that made me realise how serious it was was the fact that my brother flew over from Australia and was there within two, two three days. And in a way, that was because it was so nice to see him. It sort of took the edge off of everything else that was happening. We hadn't seen each other for about a year, so we were catching up about the, his children and things like that. So, I think that made me realise it was serious, but still not not quite what the implications had been. Um, and also because he was only able to get here for a, for a few matter of days, I was desperate to get myself better and out because I wanted to be home before he he left to go back but unfortunately that didn't happen um, but I was so determined to go that actually at the it got to the weekend and they let me have home leave for a day <laughs> <That's> <laughs> to see right. how I would manage yeah. <laughs> I <hear that. laughs> yeah they let me have home leave they, my friend came and picked me up took me home for about two or three hours under strict instructions to deliver me straight back <laughs> a few hours later
0: <laughs> you didn't get back to the hospital and find someone else was in your bed
1: uh, right? that's exactly what did happen <laughs> That's exactly what happened. Up to that point, I'd had the room on my own opposite the nurse's station. They obviously figured that if I was well enough to go home for a bit, I could manage a ward. So when I got back, my stuff had been moved. Oh, well. That really gave me the incentive to make sure I got home.
0: Uh, have you got an ICD? Or?
1: No. No. they. Um, I'm on copious amounts of medication, um, about 18 pills a day. Um, and that's... What I've been told is that as long as they can stop me from having another heart attack, I'm no more at risk of another cardiac arrest than anybody else.
0: So, Did they find the underlying cause of the heart attack?
1: No. Um, my dad died of a heart attack when he was 45. Um, I had naturally high cholesterol. I'd always been quite healthy. I'm a vegetarian. Um, eat all the right things. So I tried to control my cholesterol like that. There's heart issues on my mother's side as well. So far, there's no real answer. I did smoke, um, and obviously that was another contributing factor. Um, but I do remember being told that, you know, stress, which work was quite stressful, um, plus the genetics, plus smoking, plus naturally high cholesterol, I was almost like a time bomb waiting to, waiting to happen. So, but no, I've never actually got to an underlying route as to why. But these medica- this medication is going to keep me alive.
0: <laughs> um, I just asked about the ICD because lots of people do get an ICD and then mm. a lot a don't. And I do hear from people who've had a heart attack and they go, well, why haven't I got an ICD? And they feel a little bit vulnerable without one.
1: I did at first very much so. Um, I think when I started actually looking into you know, what had happened and how outcomes are for other people and realised that a lot of people do get an ICD. I had the conversation with my cardiologist at the time and said, asked why I hadn't, and the reason was, well, we know what caused yours. Um, and as long as we can minimise the risk of that happening again, then actually, they, they, you know, you shouldn't have a problem.
0: It mm-hmm. sounds, sounds perfectly sensible. Which does make
1: sense. <laughs> yeah,
0: because having an ICD isn't uh, a walk in the park, is it?
1: No, I'm sure it's not. So as much as at the time I have felt that maybe I should have as a, a sort of safety note, I'm very relieved now that I don't have.
0: So what medications did they give you?
1: Um, I'm on everything from statins to beta blockers, um, pain medication, um, goodness, blood thinners, usual aspirin, decagrilla teca- to protect the stents, what else? I can't think, but there's a, there's a list.
0: (laughs) You meant, was it 18 a day? Yeah, 18 a
1: day. Mm
0: -hmm. Not all at once, I hope.
1: No, morning and night.
0: (laughs) I do wonder when, do you find, well, if you've got to take both, is it the same in the morning and the same at the night?
1: No, slightly different. Things like statins you take in the evening after you've eaten to try and negate any uh, damage that,
0: it's the statins the
1: that's for the cholesterol. That's for cholesterol. Um, yeah, and other things like the isoprolol and ramipril, that take, which helps the heart itself, uh, their, their morning. Um, all of them come with their own particular side effects, which is always nice. And they are, to be honest, always a constant reminder of what's happened. It's hard to escape from it all when, when every morning and every evening you have to do something that... You know is is a consequence of what happened but but they're there and they keep me alive, so I'm grateful for them
0: <laughs> How long did it take for them to sort of find your right mix of medication
1: um not that long actually um I had a lot of problems with the statins initially because one of the the things that was fallout from the cardiac arrest was developing fibromyalgia um I did It's almost like unexplained aches and pains. Um, It's normally diagnosed via negating anything and everything else. Um, So arthritis, rheumatism, that sort of thing. Um, I'd had it mildly when I was younger and it seemed to have sort of righted itself. However, after the cardiac arrest, it came back with absolute vengeance. It can be quite debilitating. You get lots of pains in any, all joints, muscles. Um, it can cause brain fog, fatigue, yeah, not a particularly pleasant, dizzy condition, dis- condition yeah, yeah. to live with. <laughs> Thank you. Is it, the it other is thing evil? that you get with is from uh, the fallout of a cardiac arrest is loss of words. That's uh, <laughs> knowing what you want to say and not being able to get your head around it. yeah
0: <laughs> I was going to say, how were you when you were discharged? Because we, you talked about how you got a bag full of medications. Um, so what did the hospital say to you at that point? And was there any uh, planned things for your recovery?
1: Um, I think immediately. I, I know when I was in hospital, somebody had come to see me to talk about um, follow-up. And at that point, I was particularly tearful. Um, I was having a day where I was struggling quite a, quite a lot. And she at that point mentioned making a referral to South End's cardiac team who I would be transferred to um, on my release from Basildon.
0: Because you actually live nearer South End? Nearer South
1: End, yeah, yeah.
0: Do you know why they took you to, when you say Basildon, do you you mean the Essex Cardiothoracic Centre? The Cardiothoracic,
1: yes, yeah. Um, I understand because they are the experts. Um, That's why I was taken there. And as I say, that my treatment in there couldn't be faulted at all. Um, they were amazing. I owe them my life. Um, so yes, that was a referral was made for Southend to pick up through via cardiac rehab, um, both physically and emotionally. I think. I was one of the lucky ones because I had a heart attack. Obviously, I was referred for cardiac rehab, which I understand not everyone that has a cardiac arrest is fortunate enough to, to get. So, yeah, that referral was made. But other than that, really, no, it was a case of sitting by my down by me on the day that I was being released, giving me the bag of medication, telling me when I needed to take it, and um, um, what it was for, and... Pretty much, well, there you go, and we'll be in touch. Which actually, at that point, for me, was fine, because I still wasn't taking it very seriously, I think. <laughs> like, that's good, I can go home, get on the rest of my life and keep taking the medication.
0: Are we um, in a bit of denial, really, that it happened, and you thought yes. it's just, a, just a, mm. a minor blip in life?
1: Yes, yeah. And I think that continued at first. I got home, you know, walked straight in the door sat on the sofa where I'd had the cardiac arrest and didn't really even think anything much of it. People have said to me since, how do you do that? And well, I'm still doing it. Um, I think because of the denial, it enabled me to do things that had I had a chance to think about it too much, I probably wouldn't have done. Um, I'd been, had the house on the market immediately. And I think that was how it was. At first, it was just a case of getting used to the medication. You're almost euphoric that having survived... So it feels good, you are you know, things will go back to normal. And I'm really, I've done really well, I've cheated death. And I think it's only a bit later that then it actually really hits you. I remember sitting one night, literally, and I'd been feeling a bit more down and down. And then I just suddenly felt this overwhelming sadness. And I don't think I ever understood what sad meant um, until this particular moment. And I couldn't stop crying. And I think the, the flashes of the images were, were coming. I was on my own. My partner had gone to bed. I haven't slept properly since it happened, so that's another contributing factor, I think, to um, not feeling so great at that point in time. And I remember just sitting there thinking, I just don't know who to, where to go. What, how, how do I deal with this? And in that moment thinking, actually, that black space, there was this peaceful black space between feeling the crush... I'm waking up on the floor where there was nothing. And that all of a sudden became very, very attractive, which is a really weird thing to say. But the piece of it, I think, see, I think the thing is afterwards, you think you're okay, you think you're emo- you've are you got your emotions in check, you're, you're euphoric because you've you've survived, you're not looking forward, but then you hit that point where actually you do need to, you know, you've got to try and move on from it. And that's when you realise how difficult it actually is and how much it's become a part of you um, trying to survive. And I was very lucky that night. I started Googling things because I just didn't know what to do. I was either going to sit and cry all night or I had to do something. So I was Googling cardiac arrests. I was looking at it on Facebook. And Cardiac Arrest UK cropped up. And I sent the join thing. It must have been responded to very, very quickly. Because I know within an hour or so, I was actually, I was writing down what I was feeling. I'd had a look through people's posts and I could see that other people had felt similar things to how I was feeling. And I think I just literally blurted everything out and just said, this is how I'm feeling. I shouldn't be feeling like this. I should be happy. I should be grateful. But actually, I don't. I'm feeling really low. And the messages that came back were so full of support. And other people saying, we understand that that was a real... I think it was a turning point for me. It almost allowed me to feel how I was feeling because I wasn't going mad. I wasn't completely alone. Um, but it was also permission to actually think, OK, well, just go with it. Don't keep fighting yourself. You don't have to be this superwoman that is going to be back at work next week, you know, babysitting, chopping down trees in the garden. You can go with how you're actually feeling and and live it. Um.
0: How soon after the cardiac arrest was this, do you think?
1: I think it was about two, two and a half months, maybe. Not sure exactly.
0: So, The preceding um, eight, ten weeks, how, how had you been during that time?
1: As I say, I think initially I'd been fine, quite euphoric, quite happy, thought everything was going back to normal. It was just a case of getting used to the medication. I think as I went looking back on it now, I think I got progressively worse. Over that period, I think after I'd had from coming out of hospital to when I went back into hospital to have the third stent fitted, which was exactly two months later in the November, I think that's probably when it really started hitting home, because I was aware for that one. I was laying on a table. I was watching my heart that time. Um, and it brought back memories of what had happened the first time when I wasn't really aware. Um they'd had trouble stopping the bleeding um from where they'd gone in through my groin to put the stent in and i remember going completely cold and shivering whilst i was on that table and just thinking this is it I'm, i you know i'm going to bleed out almost very dramatic um but i think that came as such a shock and um, one that i hadn't expected um that it really that really threw up a lot of um a lot of thoughts and feelings about the whole situation, and um, was maybe the, the the trigger for me taking it more seriously.
0: Do, do um, you think that was because of the partly because of the memories that you had as well at the the first? Uh...
1: Yes. Yeah. Definitely. Um, I think I hadn't taken it. You know, I can talk about having laid on the the table, looking at my heart in the middle of having cardiac arrests but the flashbacks it brought when I was actually laying on that table waiting to have the third one done, you know, it all suddenly became very real, um, which I don't think it necessarily was the first time around. It was quite surreal. And I was almost outside of it. It was happening to me. The second time I was very involved in what was going on. And I think that's why it threw up so much about the first time around.
0: Yeah, it's a very good point. And there's a lot of similarities with me there, actually, because... um, I've got no memory of the first one, but three months after I had my one, I had a, an issue with my, uh, as it turns out to be, with the ICD lead. Mm. And I was admitted back into hospital, and I had a panic attack when I was having an ECG, and I've had gazillions of those. Yeah. And so, you yeah. know, yeah, I was a lot more aware of my conscious state, was a lot more yeah. uh, aware. And I, there, it makes me think that there's something buried away in the back there mm-hmm. that has remembered what went on.
1: yes. yes. Yeah.
0: And you don't want to go here anymore, Paul. It's, it's This is a bad place. <laughs>
1: yeah, oh, and it's frightening. It, it is frightening.
0: It is very, mm-hmm. very frightening. I mean, from my point of view, the panic attack was worse than the cardiac arrest <laughs> because I don't remember <laughs> that, the first one.
1: Yeah, and talking about panic attacks, I think probably a lot of us have ended up back in hospital afterwards with panic attacks, thinking it's happening again. Mm-hmm. Um, I know I did. Um, I think once, once before the Christmas and then once afterwards um early part of 2017 the first one was definitely a panic attack it is I now know but at the time I really felt like something it it was so much worse than the first when it had actually happened the first time you know I almost felt like I had pains in my chest I could feel my heart going none of that had happened before (laughs) so
0: so so you did feel like you were going to have another heart attack
1: yeah definitely
0: and was there any... Did you go to hospital and...?
1: I did. They adjusted some of my medication a bit, um, the beta blockers and things to try and sort of... They reduced my dosage, um, and that did seem to to help. Um, and then I did end up back in hospital again afterwards, which then turned out to be pericarditis, which is a, a sort of um, infection around the heart, which stupidly had been caused by a, a broken tooth that I was literally due to go and have sorted out so take care of your teeth folks
0: <laughs> well uh, yeah you're not the first person who i've heard <laughs> say something like that mm. just last week there was someone else who mentioned that they had a, a problem with their teeth and they ended up in hospital because yeah. of it
1: yeah it, it's apparently a proven link um between hearts and teeth so
0: indeed so yeah. i know a lot of people are uh, worried or anxious about going to see the dentist after they've had a cardiac arrest And partly because they, well, because of what happened, but also because of ICD, and they're worried about the equipment, whether there's a a problem with it, and there's not generally. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think there's any reason why you shouldn't go and see a a dentist, if especially if you you do have to inform them um, Mm -hmm. of what's happened to you and what medications you're on, and they they're they're one of the best places to go actually because. (laughs) Because they normally have a, a defib. Yeah. They have everything. They normally have a defib on site as well because um, it's a recommendation for them to do so. Mm. That's another point, yeah. actually. If you're ever out anywhere and someone has a cardiac arrest, go to your local dentist because they'll they, have they, one. They'll know where to, yeah. as, as long as there's not some t- uh, busybody who won't let you have it, but <laughs> which has been known. But anyway... Uh, Going back to what you were saying, you put this sort of episode down to anxiety, would it be?
1: Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think, I don't know where it comes from. I think the slightest little thing, and and normally nothing um, can be what can cause anxiety. Things that would never have worried me before, um, all of a sudden can be a problem. I get very anxious about being alone with my grandson Obviously, there's always that fear. Once once it's happened to you, there's always going to be the fear that it could happen again. Um, and I think I'm a lot better now. But in those initial months, I found it very difficult. I didn't like um, I didn't like to leave the house for for months. Um, I didn't drive for months. Uh, I, I still don't like going anywhere too far on my own. Um,
0: Did it? Was it because you didn't trust your own body? Do you think?
1: Yeah. Yes, I think that's probably exactly what it, what it is. And it's also the fear of what you could do to somebody else. So, or putting anybody else through that situation. So in a way, bizarrely, for a long time, I felt that I was safer and other people were safer if I actually sat on the couch in the position that it had happened in the first place. <laughs> Go figure. It's
0: understandable because there are a number of stories of where... Drivers have had a cardiac arrest driving and absolutely uh, and taken mm. out people and caused devastating uh, effects
1: yeah. yeah, and I think there is there is always that that fear, and I think you learn to live with the fear i don't think it ever goes away completely, I think you do you learn to to get on with life you've you've got to find that new that new balance, the new normal um otherwise it's beaten you, you know it, so and I think it took me a long term, long time to sort of come to terms with it. Um, I know of other people who, whose stories I've read that are absolutely miraculous. You know, they, they're back running marathons within a year and things, and I think everyone reacts differently. I mean, I'm lucky that I've been left with not too much fallout, but obviously I've had quite a lot of physical issues that have come from it. Um,
0: Could you go into those and...?
1: As I say, the fibromyalgia is is a, an issue. it's a problem. Um, I have days where I literally can hardly get out of bed um, where pains are so bad. I've had numerous hospital tests which are still ongoing to try and get to the, the root cause of why I constantly feel like I've stuck my shin on a table. Um, things like things like that. Um, I've also been diagnosed with COPD. Since, so I have to take the after inhalers and things like that that also go with it. Um, that's lung disease, so restricted lung capacity. Um, again, not sure it could be to do with my previous smoking, but also the cardiac arrest obviously heightened it. I think. Um, as I say, I wasn't aware of any issues before. So yeah, going from feeling that you're perfectly healthy to them within a couple of months having to come to terms with having things that actually are going to be lifelong conditions um, is is quite hard.
0: What about the other sort of common uh, complaints? I suppose or that um, cardiac arrest survivors often mention, like um, problems with their memory and anxiety, uh, uh, fatigue.
1: Yes, definitely. Um, I think it's a bit of a double-edged sword because fibromyalgia obviously gives the same when I talk about sort of brain fog. Um, that's similar to sort of memory loss. I can have a conversation with somebody and completely forget that I've had that conversation. Um, and no, when, once I'm reminded, I obviously was very actively involved in it, but my memory hasn't retained it. Um, I find it really difficult, as I said earlier, with words actually trying... You know what word you want to get out, but all of a sudden it's, it's just gone. And that can be quite difficult, especially when you've been used to being in sort of work and life where you're used to talking to people. You're used to, you know, needing to remember copious amounts of information and be able to bring them back. I struggle to remember what I said we were going to have for tea. Um, so I think it isolates you as well because you you're aware of those sort of things happening um, and yeah, I think that's probably why for a long time I made sure any situation I was in, I had I had other people with me.
0: Did you use any other sort of coping strategies? Did it, you know, like having a notepad and writing things down all the time? Yeah, and... I'm
1: very good at lists now, <laughs> 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 just so I know what I've done, where I've been, and what I need to do.
0: <laughs> you mentioned earlier that you went to rehab because you had a car had a heart attack. Yeah. Can you tell me what you did there and how that helped with the things and how it perhaps missed out on some of your other things that you? Yeah, thinking? I
1: mean, I think I was very lucky because obviously I'd had my emotional day in hospital. So when the cardiac rehab team from South End contacted me, um, they were already aware that psychologically I might have a few issues. Um, it took a while because of all the physical. Issues having to go back for stents, et cetera, before I was even able to go and actually see the cardiac rehab team. But when I did, they also made a referral to their own psychiatrist, a uh, psychologist. Um, so I was able to start that quite quickly. Um, about three months after I actually had a cardiac arrest, I was seeing a psychologist at Southend Hospital. And that was at the same time as doing sort of the physical cardiac rehab um, sessions. With those, um, I had limited sessions in terms of the physical um, ones, mainly because, as I say, I didn't drive. I didn't go out on my own. So it was arranged that I would only need to go once a week as opposed to the twice a week and didn't really have to engage in as full a session as as they could provide. I literally just did some of the, the more physical where they were testing, testing your blood pressure and getting you walking up and down, bouncing balls at each other and, and just keeping a general eye to see how your heart was working um and that was really good because it made me go out and sort of see other people that had been through similar of course I was the youngest one there and
0: did did that make a difference to you do you think
1: um I think in a way it reinforced that I felt that I was quite unlucky (laughs) you know it was okay why me why am I the only one of my age here you know, for, for a lot of time, over, you know, even in my hospital and at cardiac rehab, I got referred to as a little miracle by a lot of people, um, nurses, doctors, hospital staff. And nice. that sort of seemed to continue into into the rehab sessions.
0: How did you feel about great. that tag?
1: Um, it's a tag that I'm grateful to have because um, the alternative isn't so great. But I think, again, it, it sort of reinforced maybe my vulnerability um, that I had to be in that situation. So I was lucky that at that point they were referring me to the, the psychologist who I started seeing quite quickly. Um, he was very good. Um, the therapy was based around CBT, so it was very much around looking at almost like physical goals. So how was I going to get myself out of my house on my own? Um how would I ever get into the car and drive it again without being absolutely panic-stricken? Um, and I saw him for a, a lot of months um, and did achieve those goals. I think it was very it was very useful in as much as after about six months. I had achieved a lot of the goals that I wanted to achieve. Um, I did manage to walk the dog round the block on my own. Um, I had got in the car and driven it on my own. I was still struggling at that point um, with... Seeing people, social situations, I suddenly realised that I'd made goodness knows how many arrangements to meet up with people um, over the previous six months and actually hadn't gone to any of them. There'd been an excuse every time to, to not go. Um, and I don't think at the time I even realised I was doing it, um, but it became more and more of an issue. Um, I missed a, a family funeral, a very close member of the fam- family. Um, Because I just couldn't face it. I couldn't face people asking how I was, what was going on. I also couldn't face people going, oh, you look really well. (laughs) When inside I I felt I was absolutely crumbling and wasn't even sure who I was. So the CBT definitely helped in terms of giving me practical goals and making me sort of act on doing things and just taking the plunge. But I think it was about nine months in... That I would start really started suffering badly from flashbacks, and it became, felt that it was becoming more and more with me instead of less and less with me. Um, I didn't matter what I was doing. I'd suddenly see myself looking at the ceiling, or I'd see the people, yeah, standing over me, or I'd be something would be happening, and my brain would get too busy, and I'd almost be wanting to be back in that black place. And I started mentioning that to my psychologist, who very quickly um, diagnosed PTSD. Um, he, he tried to look at doing some reliving, but at that point I wasn't ready for it. Some reliving? Reliving. The idea is that they try and take you back to the memory that's disturbing you and make and, and refocus your brain, because your brain's processing it in the way that it wants to process it, not necessarily... It's not necessarily processing what's real. It doesn't understand what happened in that period where you weren't around. So it's trying to make sense of it, is how it was sort of described to me. Um, and one of the ways of treating that is to almost go back to that and talk through how you felt in each moment, almost moment by moment, um, to try and retrain your brain. But at that point, as I say, I found it just too difficult to even talk about it, there's no way I could have sat and talked the way I am at the moment without absolutely breaking down, having panic attacks and and just falling apart, so he then referred me on to um, the psychiatry service in South Southend um, to try and get me um, some antidepressants, because he felt that actually my emotions were so all over the place that before I could do anything we almost needed to get me a bit smoothed out I think get my emotions back under control I seem to be either euphorically happy or for want of a better word almost suicidal
0: sounds a bit of a roller coaster
1: it indeed was a roller coaster (laughs) yeah and I never was particularly good on roller coasters (laughs) I like being in control So, Which I think, again, is, uh, is part of maybe why it uh, became such an issue with me, because I wanted to be in control. I was trying to get my control back, and the more I tried, the more it was slipping away. Um, so, yes, that's, um, he made the referral. I was given antidepressants, and they helped. They did help. They stopped me crying. They evened me out. Um, I'm not taking them now. And I feel better for not taking them. I didn't, don't mm-hmm. like to feel... They made me feel a bit like a zombie. It was sort of... I knew what was going on in my brain, but my body... Uh, I couldn't um, express it, I think.
0: How long were you on those for?
1: Um, about on and off for nearly a year. So I'd take... You know, I sort of taking them, then feeling a bit better, then weaning myself off, and then if it got bad again, then I'd start taking them. Probably haven't taken them for about three or four months now and actually feel like... I have got control of it, but know that I can see, you know, what to do if I should go to that place again. But in the meantime, they'd arranged for me to have EMDR, which is eye movement.
0: Desensitisation and (laughs) resensitisation. I'm
1: glad you know what it is. Yeah. And I'm literally on my sort of third session.
0: And how's that going?
1: So far, so good. Although I'm think i'm proving slightly difficult um it sounds bad because it's, it looks as though everything's a, is is a problem for me um but one of the things they asked you to do is to find sort of a happy safe place that you can go to in your head when things feel bad unfortunately for me at the moment the black peaceful place is still one of my happier places and they don't think i should really use that um, <laughs> but uh they've likened it to that situation to almost being like a, a almost like a drug that, you know, with a heroin addict, they may chase a high. With me, I'm chasing that piece. It's like I want my brain to switch off and, and stop thinking about it, and which sort of makes sense. But I have heard amazing results of EMDR, so I'm hopeful
0: that... Yes. There are several yeah. uh, people in the group who have gone through that. and
1: Yes, I read some side. of the the stories and it does seem amazing, so I'm definitely hopeful and we'll keep at it
0: have you have you considered um mindfulness as well
1: i've looked I have looked at it I must say it's not something that I've really gone into I think because because my brain works over time I find it very hard to just switch off and be in the moment it, um and when I try to do that I tend to end up back in the wrong place
0: well so. maybe. You could look at that because it, it can help you with actually sort of con- not controlling it, but going with it.
1: Yeah. OK, well, I'll, I'll definitely have a look. At that.
0: So you've gone through quite a lot. Uh, and how are you now, do you think? Um,
1: I think I'm in a good place now.
0: So, this, so is, this is what two and a half years? Two and a half
1: years. Yeah. Um, I'm definitely in a better place than I have been. I think I'm finding it easier to accept my new normal. Um, I don't know that I'll ever be able to say, yes, I'm absolutely okay with it all. Um, Life changed overnight. You know, I never went back to work. I would like to hope that one day I will be able to. Um, But in the meantime, I have managed to find things that relate to my new normal, that also make me happy. So I can't say I'm in a bad place. Um, Do I wish it hadn't happened? Yes, of course I do. Um, But it has. So I think it is very much now I'm in a position and a place where I'm trying to move on, to accept it, to be able to put it behind me or just make it part of me now rather than something separate that happened to me. Um, that I keep fighting against.
0: <laughs> You're gradually adjusting Just, to it. Adjust, yeah. yeah,
1: yeah, to that new world where life isn't quite the same as it was before.
0: <laughs> you mentioned that you didn't go back to your work and that you've got grandchildren. How has that affected your life, not being able to work? and
1: um, It's been difficult in some ways. I mean, obviously not being able to work. I was previously very, very independent. Um, you know, I made my own money, I bought my own house, I um, didn't ever have to ask anyone for anything. Um, So that's changed. I've had to adjust. And in some ways, that's not a bad thing. Um, It means I've had to learn to work better with other people um, and probably take other people into account more. Um, So it's a two-edged sword. The other great thing of not working is being able to spend so much time with my grandchildren, which has been absolutely lovely. I mean, when... I understand that when I actually came round on my floor, my first words to my partner were, don't forget to tell Lily, who's my daughter, and Oscar, my grandson, how much I love them if this goes wrong. Um, and that's why I feel grateful every day. I look at him and I look at her and think about what I, w- what I would have missed and I couldn't be more grateful to be here. I'm also lucky enough to have a, a, four-year-old, a four-month-old granddaughter who was born just before Christmas. Um, and she, her little smile is enough to make anyone want to live forever.
0: <laughs>
1: mm. So, yeah, in, life's different, but there are definitely bonuses. Um, I get to spend much more time with them than I ever did before. Um, I get to go out to lunch a lot more than I ever did before.
0: <laughs> You've got to look for the positives. you got to look at the <laughs>
1: positives, yeah. <laughs> um, and obviously we've been involved with some some other things that I'm very proud of since since it all happened and mainly thanks to you Paul and the group I mean it's given me a chance to to meet other people who have been through similar being part of the GWR one of the 127 was an absolute honor um part of an amazing day
0: just for those who don't know the GWR is Guinness World Record that was achieved uh June 2018 at the Essex Cardiothoracic Centre
1: yep uh, an amazing day um, and anything I wouldn't, couldn't recommend highly enough for people to attend events run by SCA UK.
0: What, what did you get out of that day, apart from being a record holder?
1: Apart from being a record holder and um, obviously my key ring and certificate, I think it was just being in a place where you could turn around to the person next to you, mention something about what happened and they just knew what you meant. Um, we all knew what each other had been through. It's very unusual. You don't bump into people that have had a cardiac arrest and survived. Um, and I think being in a place where you can look at others and see how far they've come, I think, is, is amazing, um, especially as I was not in a great place at that time. And I think it gave me the incentive to, to keep moving um, and to, to want to do more and to be more involved with cardiac arrest-related um, activity, but also with the rest of the world. Um, it took a lot. Even the morning of the, the attempt, I still wasn't sure if I was actually going to manage to get myself dressed out the door and get there um, and be in a room full of other people. But, yeah, just doing it really gave me the incentive and the courage to know that I still can do those sort of things. So that was amazing. Um,
0: Did you Were you worried about being in a big crowd of people, do you think?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I didn't know that I'd be able to talk to other people. Um, I was worried about just literally being in a crowd of people. Um, I think you get almost oversensitive, and I don't know if this is something that's gem- general to cardiac arrest, but noise, people, bustle, it can all get too much. Um, sometimes feel like your brain's going to explode with things going on around you. <laughs> and that's one of the things that I was worried about, that I'd get there and actually just wouldn't be able to face being amongst everyone but i think it was so everyone was so welcoming um everyone was smiling at each other it was almost like an unwritten sort of understanding that people just got it and i think that was really good and the few people that I did speak to we all said exactly the same that was sort of the the brilliant thing about it was that it didn't matter who you talked to um, especially within that room, where there was 127 of us, all in one room, just the survivors, um, and it was a, uh, it was fabulous. It, it's, you can't really describe how it feels. No, looking around and thinking, my goodness, we've all been there.
0: <laughs> it's a kind of therapy. It
1: it definitely a therapy in itself. Yeah, yeah.
0: So when you went home and recovered from that day, did you, do you feel like you would moved on in your recovery?
1: Yes. Yeah, I felt very proud. Um, of all of us, but of myself as well for, for having done it. I also felt very proud of my daughter and my partner who came with me. Um, I know it's very, very difficult for them to go back to what happened that night. Um, they have their own trauma from it. My partner obviously was there when it happened. He, he saw it. He was with me throughout that night. Um, he still finds it very difficult to talk about, um, and I think he would like to almost be able to just park it somewhere um, and for us to move on. Um, so I think even for the fact that he and my daughter came along with me, that was a massive step as well. And I think for them to realise that I'm not unique in being slightly insane after cardiac arrest um, was quite a good thing for them as well.
0: <laughs> Has your partner considered getting any help from himself? Because if you're a member of the group, or mm-hmm. as you are, you, you, you can get some counselling free if you can't get it through your NHS provider.
1: I've I've suggested that he might want to. Um, he's he's a typical builder. He doesn't use computers. Um, everything should be seen in black and white. Um, you know, if it, if it can be built and drawn on plans and put together with maths, that's what he understands. Um, I don't know if you've ever read a book called A Man Like Ove. Uh, no, A Man Called Ove. Um, my partner is an Ove. <laughs> Anyone that's read it would understand what I mean by that. Um, I think in time, maybe. Um, but I think they've concentrated so much on me that maybe they haven't... I might recognise more what they're going through than they actually do.
0: Um, I think that tends to be the case though, isn't it? Because we've gone through that event Mm -hmm. and it's a medical event. So we're focused on to get us well and healthier. And the person who's seen the whole trauma gets pushed to the side to a certain... Not pushed to the side, but they don't get the attention they deserve and need.
1: No, absolutely. And I do think if anything could be improved within hospitals is that, you know, relatives partners are given some idea of maybe what to expect afterwards because i think the way i became came as such a shock to them it had always been me that was very much in control me sitting back and going i can't do this they didn't really understand um
0: so was it a change in the dynamics of your household
1: totally i think um i say totally no i'm still a bit of a control freak um dynamics have changed yes i'm i'm not invincible anymore um and there's also the temptation on their part to to overprotect me. I think so. It, it's a thin line, isn't it, between wanting someone to care about how you feel, but not wanting to encroach on your being. And it's it's a tightrope, I think, for all a of us. A bit suffocating at times. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Uh,
0: but it's only in the best uh, best will, really. Yeah. But it also has the can have a negative effect on them as well because mm-hmm. they're being a bit too hyper-vigilant and they yes. can become a little bit anxious all the time from, Absolutely. from doing that.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And it's, it's quite apparent at times, you know, I'll go to do something, don't, I'll do it. And actually, no, well, I did it last week, so I can do it again this week. And it, I think there is that definite change in um, how, they, how they react to you and the things that you do. You know, I think... A prime example is I would never have thought anything of getting on a plane, going off around the world on my own. Now, if I even mention, you know, get, maybe getting on a train to go down to Devon to see my friend, that it's, they're worried. Um, so, yeah, we have to work around those things.
0: Have you, have you done any travelling since? Have you gone on a plane?
1: Yes, I've been abroad a couple of times since, uh, three times. Only a short haul, Europe, but... Um,
0: How did you find that?
1: Actually, I found it fine. It's, it's weird. I always had a thing about flying in as much as I loved it because it was one place where I couldn't be in control. So I used to be able to get on a plane, read a book, and anything else was out of my hands. And that's still kind of how I feel about it. So, um, which is quite odd, bearing in mind a cardiac arrest is out of your hands. And maybe that's why I sort of liken it to that being my peaceful place. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, so, yeah, life doesn't stop. It just...
0: It changes. Do you think your partner's uh, adjusting to it now? Is time a healer for him as well, do you think?
1: I think time definitely is a healer. Um, I think it, it rears its head now and then. Um, I think he... For me, it's diff- it, it is quite difficult because he's not a talker. He's, he's a doer. So he'll redecorate the bathroom rather than talk to me about what happened that night. Um... But we have our own way of sort of working working around things and, and dropping things into conversations and, and sort of, it's a bit like a boxing ring in some ways. You know, you sort of come forward, back off, come forward and eventually we'll get to where we need to go. <laughs> but I suspect we were probably always a bit like that. It was just over different situations. But I think it has brought us all closer together. Also that we've had to, you know, we've really had to work at it together.
0: Yeah, that's a good point because it can put a lot of pressure on the family situation. For some, it can pull them apart, but for Absolutely. others, yeah. others it can pull them together. So that's good to hear that. Yes, you know? yeah.
1: yeah, we're in a good place.
0: Good, good. One question I quite often like to ask is, have you got any tips or advice for other people going through a similar situation?
1: Um My main tip for anybody that hasn't actually been there yet is make sure you take out critical care uh, critical illness insurance um because terminal illness doesn't cover you for a cardiac arrest <laughs> if you come back
0: <laughs> well that, that uh, i mean that's a good point that the if you're listening to this and you've got uh, critical illness insurance you're and you, you took your policy out more than a few years ago do check it that it's covered for cardiac arrest because the older ones tend not to be. Absolutely. And um, the alternative is income protection insurance, mm-hmm. which is slightly different.
1: Yes, I think uh, it's too late to take it out while you feel that you're absolutely fine rather than <laughs> afterwards. Um,
0: what about any health-type ones or health
1: type tips, things I mean, to help
0: you in your recovery?
1: I think in terms of sort of just general health, it is... Look after yourself. I mean, I probably did a lot of things wrong with my health beforehand in as much as work came first. So I'd, I'd skip breakfast, I'd skip dinner. I didn't always eat the right things. You'd be grabbing things on the go. So, you know, looking at your day-to-day life, healthy lifestyle is definitely one thing. Afterwards, I think talking about it is is definitely a help. Um if I'd talked about things more before I got into the bad place, I think maybe I wouldn't have got as bad as I did. I think if I hadn't tried to appear that everything was fine and that I was dealing with it and coping with it, um, I don't think I'd have gone to the very dark place that I did go to. So talk, talk, talk some more. Um,
0: with, it, with it, with your family or with other survivors? I, th-
1: I would say Both. Both. Um, I think with my family, it might have been easier for them to deal with the aftermath had I spoken to them earlier. um, They'd have seen things coming maybe before it got to the point where it was too bad. I think talking to the survivors has been a lifesaver for me. Um, The group has definitely provided me with the support that I wouldn't have known where to get So even having gone through, you know, psychologists and therapy, actually, some of the advice on the group, um, and I don't mean in in terms of physical health, I mean in terms of just support and knowing that somebody out there gets it um, has been absolutely invaluable. uh, I don't know where I'd be without that group. That's
0: that's great to hear.
1: And it's true. (laughs) Have you got a
0: copy of our book, by the way?
1: (laughs) I have indeed. (laughs) I don't think I've rated it yet, but I will do. Yes,
0: that's the Life After Cardiac Arrest book, which is compiled from the sort of best um, or most varied uh, entries on our blog on the website suddencardiacarrestuk.org. And it's available as a ebook or a um, paperback through Amazon. And if you do read it, please give us a nice review.
1: It's excellent. <laughs> for an insight, it's absolutely excellent.
0: And we hopefully will be having a, a second edition, um, maybe this year. And uh, Charlie's actually submitted a uh, an entry, which is um, very good. I haven't published it yet. I need to get my finger out. I've got a bit behind on that. So apologies for that. But also you wrote a, a very nice poem as well.
1: I'd never realised I was a poet before, and in fact, I don't think I am reading it back. But again, I think it was in one of those moments where things were just going through my head, and somehow I needed to get them out. Um, And the poem, when I read it back, it almost reads in flashes, which is a bit like I see my cardiac arrest journey, I think. I see it in in flashes and pictures. Um, But I found it very cathartic. So again, another thing maybe to advise is that, yes, if you can't find somewhere to talk about it, write it down get it out of your head somewhere, get it, get it out, um, don't bottle it up. Um, and also in terms of advice, get involved with other things. So, um, I mean, one of our achievements this year was getting Dr. Keeble, the hospital heroes award. Yeah, world. and you're a
0: prime instigator of that. So well done to you for that. Oh, that so was it was brilliant.
1: And, and the group, look at the amount of, uh, support he got and, and so thoroughly deserves as well. So it was indeed, yeah. Um, And also I'm now involved in um, raising funds for defibrillators throughout our village. Um, We've just raised, local WI has just raised enough money to purchase our first one. Um, And for my sins, I've been made the chair of the the group that is uh, (laughs) trying to deliver five across the area. So again, it's just another way of sort of using it for, as a benefit, rather than seeing it as always as a a negative. I think we have to build on it.
0: finding a different purpose in your life and Mm -hmm. giving something back
1: yeah absolutely
0: that's a brilliant positive note to end on so thank you very much for um, chatting with me today and I hope people appreciate your time because I certainly did
1: thank you and thank you for listening
0: thanks a lot